John 17. John 17. 20 through 26. John 17, 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you for this wonderful prayer in John 17. And Father, we pray that now you would send your spirit to help us understand uh, the heart of Christ behind this prayer. Father, we confess that nothing good will happen this morning unless you send your spirit to give us the gift of understanding. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts uh, to help us understand and apply these truths and worship you, most importantly, because of these truths. And we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Consider this list of real church conflicts. One church fought over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Another church was involved in a protracted battle about the presence of a clock in the worship center. Another church fought over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. In another church, a dispute arose whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during the worship service. In another church, a battle erupted over the decision to utilize gluten-free bread in communion. Two churches reported fights over coffee. In one church, they moved from Folgers to Starbucks. In another church, they simply moved to a stronger blend, and members actually left the church. I'm not making this up, sadly. Then there was COVID. How many churches fought over the politics of COVID? Church splits are tragic on so many levels because they wound the sheep, they damage Christian witness, and most importantly, they grieve God. Is church unity even possible? I'm sure many of you have been involved in nasty, dishonoring church splits. Is it even possible for us to hope for some semblance of church unity? And the answer is a resounding yes. It's not only possible, it's certain. Why is church unity certain? Because Jesus Christ, our Lord, prayed to his Father in John 17 
for the unity of the church. And because Christ was praying to his Father, we know the Father has heard this prayer, and the Father will answer this prayer. Now, before we look at the last part of, this, of Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17, let me remind us where we've been so far. Uh, Christ prays for himself in verses 1 to 5, then Christ prays for the disciples in verses 6 to 20, and now Christ is praying for his church in verses 20 to 26, and here he prays for one specific thing, and that is the unity of his church or the oneness of his church. Now, what does it mean when Christ prays for the unity or the oneness of the church? Well, we're going to look at five headings to help us understand this particular prayer for oneness or unity in the church. First, we see uh, the plea for unity. Look with me at John 17, verses 20 to 23. Again, this is Christ praying to his heavenly Father, and he says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, here it is again, that they may be one. Second time he's prayed that, even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Third time he's prayed this that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So here Christ passionately pleads with his Father, not once, not twice, but three times for oneness or unity uh, among his church. Now the words in verse 21, that they may all be one, were the favorite words of a previous generation of Christians. In the middle part of the 20th century, uh, a massive global movement known as the ecumenical movement enveloped or engrossed the church. This was a massive worldwide trend or phenomenon that led to all kinds of conferences and books and something called the World Council of Churches. Church unity, church oneness was a huge deal in the middle of the 20th century. In fact, one scholar and pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says that church unity was the defining characteristic of the 20th century church. There was a tremendous passion among Protestants and Catholics and the Orthodox to come about and to form some kind of organizational or bureaucratic unity. Now, this sincere but somewhat misguided movement raised a few really important questions for us. Like, what exactly is the unity that's described in verse 21? What does Jesus mean when he prays for the unity or the oneness of the church? What is the nature of that unity? Is it a, is it a lowest common denominator unity? Do we, do we get rid of all theological distinctives? and base our unity on the lowest common theological denominator? Are we supposed to seek the ongoing unity of the church in answer to Christ's prayer? If so, what does it look like to work for or pursue this unity? And most importantly, has Jesus' prayer for unity been answered? At first, it doesn't seem like it because there are literally thousands of denominations around the world. The Christian church seems more divided than ever before. Now, my goal is to answer all these questions this morning to some extent, but at this point, one thing is very clear in these verses. Jesus has a passion for unity. He pleads with his Father, again, not once, not twice, but three times for the oneness or the unity 
of his church. Now, why is Christ so concerned about this? And that brings us to the second heading. So first is the plea for unity, and second is the pattern of unity. What is church unity supposed to be patterned on? And the answer is the Trinity. Look with me again at John 17, at 20 to 23. And notice Christ pleads for unity three times, and each time he makes that plea, he attaches that plea to some um, inference or reference to the Trinity. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, there's the plea for unity, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we, that is the triune community, are one. I in them, and you in me. That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you love me. Now these verses take us into some seriously deep theological Trinitarian water. So put on your theological thinking caps for a few moments here because there is some incredibly important and deep and mysterious Trinitarian theology in these glorious verses. Christ makes, again, three petitions for unity, and each time he does, he patterns that on the unity of the Trinity. Verse 21, he says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be become perfectly one. And again, these verses force us to wrestle with the doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible teaches that there is one God who exists in three distinct persons. We are Trinitarian monotheists, and both those words count. We are Trinitarian. We believe in three persons. We are monotheists. We believe in one God. Both of these words must be stressed. Now, these verses are stressing very clearly the oneness or the unity of the Trinity. How? They teach us that Jesus Christ dwells in the Father, and the Father dwells in the Son. And by implication, the Spirit dwells within the Father and the Son. Theologians call this mutual indwelling, interpenetration, or perichorosis. Big theological words. What do these words mean? They're getting at this, the, the oneness or the unity of the Godhead. Let's go back one step. Each member of the Trinity is fully God. That is, each member of the Trinity shares in the same essence uh, or uh, ontology or oneness or being. They're all equally God. They all share the same attributes of deity. There is one essence. Theologians talk about how in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are consubstantial. That is, they are of the same essence. As a result, whatever the Father does the Son experiences because of that oneness. Whatever the Spirit does, the Father and Son experience because of that same oneness. And theologians call this the doctrine of inseparable operations. All that means is, again, whatever the Father does because of that oneness or unity, in some sense, the Spirit and the Son experience. And we see this in verse 21. We see this close, intimate connection, so close even, that Jesus prays that just as you, Father, are in me 
and I in you. There's this deep union between the members of the Trinity, this deep oneness, this deep sense of um, ontological equality. Earlier in John, Jesus says this, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. John 14, nine to 11. Again, there's a unified oneness in the Godhead based on their sharing of essence. Yet, the three members of the Trinity are three distinct persons, which is why the Son here is praying to the Father. There's distinction. So the Trinity exists as this wonderful community, three distinct persons in one God. We see perfect unity, oneness, and we see diversity, three persons. And the church is supposed to be like that. There's supposed to be a wonderful unity and a oneness, yet there is also good, healthy, glorious diversity in the Trinity. And the reason why Christ is so concerned about unity in the church is because he wants the church to be a glorious reflection for all the world of the unity that there is in the Trinity. So that's why unity matters so much to God. Our unity is saying something right or wrong about the unity of the Godhead. The unity in the Trinity leads to a shared love, purpose, mission, and togetherness, and this is the pattern for the unity of the church. But what does this unity or oneness in the church actually look like? What does all this mean practically? And that brings us to the third heading. So first is this plea for unity. Second is the pattern of unity. And third are the particulars of unity. Look, look again with me at John 17, 21. Jesus says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. What does it mean that the church is one? In other words, what type of unity is Christ praying for? The first step in pursuing unity is defining that unity. What what exactly does Christ have in mind? Some think that Jesus is talking here um, about an outward, physical, bureaucratic, um, organizational unity. The Roman Catholic Church, for instance, teaches that this unity means that there is one denomination, the Roman Catholic Church, under the the, uh, authority or submission of one pope. So they see this unity really as a structural unity and organizational unity. But I think that's hard to prove from the scriptures, especially here in John 17. Furthermore, the darkest periods of church history also involve the strongest institutional unity. For instance, in the high Middle Ages before the Reformation, there was tremendous unity in the Roman Catholic Church, but also there was rife corruption in the Roman Catholic Church. So what is the unity that Christ has in mind? I don't think it has to do primarily with an organizational or institutional unity. So what is it? Well, it involves a few things. Christian unity is a mystical union, like the Trinity. There is a deep sense of profound mystery in Christian unity that transcends our understanding. Furthermore, Christian unity is a spiritual union. It is brought about by the glorious, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in believers. Therefore, it is much more spiritual than institutional. All those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit as Christians have a sense of glorious unity. Most importantly, Christian unity is a salvific 
union. It is rooted in the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Without this gospel truth, there is no Christian unity. All those who've repented of their sins and put all their hope and confidence for salvation in Jesus Christ are then united to Christ by faith. Every Christian experiences that union. And if you're united to Christ by faith, and so am I, then we can experience a glorious unity that surpasses or transcends all denominations. If we both believe the gospel, we can experience a wonderful sense of fellowship and oneness and unity in Jesus Christ. Summary, Christian unity is mystical, brought about by the Holy Spirit, and rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the question is, has this prayer been answered? Yes. Like the rest of the prayers in John 17, this is the risen, not the risen, the soon to be risen, this is the Christ, the Son of God, who will soon rise from the grave. And because he's praying to his Father, his Father will hear him and his Father will answer this prayer. So in some sense, this prayer's been answered. And I know many of you have experienced this to some extent. What do I mean? Several years ago, I had the privilege of flying to Athens, Greece, and I went there uh, to teach pastors from Persia, that is Iran, from the book of Genesis. And so I didn't know these people at all. I show up in Athens, they show up in Athens. We spent a week together. They're from a different culture. They speak a different language. I, I taught them through an interpreter, which took a long time. Uh, but we had glorious fellowship. Again, different cultures, different denominations, different skin colors, different languages, but there was unity through Christ. Uh, just this last week, I was in the, the bookstore, and I, I met a pastor who was visiting this area from India. Uh, this brother was a wonderful brother. We hit it off right away and had a great conversation. Different cultures, different languages, different skin colors, different denominations, I gave him some free books in the bookstore, thanks to your generous giving. And we had great fellowship together. I, I think of the time that I went to uh, Belgium. This was probably three or four years ago to visit one of our missionaries in Belgium. Uh, and he asked me to, to give a spontaneous or extemporaneous talk on the fly to a bunch of students through an interpreter. And again, different culture, different languages, different denominations, but there we were having glorious fellowship around the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think about our local pastor's lunch that we started, I think, probably 15 years ago now. Uh, this, this group of pastors meets the last Thursday of the month. In that group, we have Presbyterians, we have Baptists, we have non-denominational guys. We all come together around the gospel of Jesus Christ and share great fellowship together. So this unity transcends theological distinctives and denominational boundaries. This is a spiritual, mystical, organic, and gospel unity. Not a perfect unity, but nonetheless, a real unity. Now suppose for a moment that we could bring together, under one roof, some of the greatest leaders, thinkers, pastors, theologians of church history. If we could go back to the fourth century and gather Augustine of Hippo, who was a brilliant theologian, uh, who was a great Trinitarian theologian, and then moving ahead in time, we could grab Bernard of Clairvaux from the 10th century or St. Anselm from the 11th century. And then we could go to the Reformation and we could grab John Calvin 
uh, the great Reformed theologian, Martin Luther, the founder of the Lutherans. And we could grab John Knox from Scotland, the founder of the Presbyterians. And then we move it, moving ahead in church history to the uh, 18th century, we could grab John Wesley, who started the Methodist movement, who was a staunch advocate of uh, free will. And then we could grab his friend, George Whitfield, who was a great reformed evangelist. Then moving ahead in church history, if we could grab Billy Graham from the 20th century, who was a Southern Baptist evangelist, and then J. Gresham Machen, uh, who was the founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and Westminster Seminary. If we could grab all those guys and put them under one roof today, there would be a little bit of tension. <laughs> You've got Baptists and Presbyterians and Arminians and Calvinists and Augustine uh, before the Reformation, all these guys coming together. It would be hard to agree on some things. There'd be some strong personalities, different languages, different cultures, different theological distinctives. But all those men agree on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the more they focused on that, the more unity they would experience. And that unity would be an answer to Christ's prayer in John 17. A real unity based on the Trinity as an answer to God's prayer. One scholar writes this, Jesus is not praying for uniformity. The Trinity is completely united, but it is not all the same. It is not a single identical unit. There are three persons in the Trinity. We should not then expect or desire a kind of unity that blurs distinctions, which means we don't all have to read the same books, go to the same conferences, vote for the same politicians, educate our kids the exact same way to experience real unity. In the Trinity, there is unity and diversity. But why does this unity matter? Why should we care about this? And that brings us to the fourth heading, the plea for unity, the pattern for unity, the particulars of unity, and fourth, the purpose of unity. What is the purpose of this unity besides glorifying the Trinity? Well, the purpose is mission. Again, look with me at verses 20 to 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be become perfectly one. Again, why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Every Sunday morning at GCF, we gather for worship. Not many of you gathered last week. <laughs> There's much more this week. But when we gather, we see blue-collar workers and white-collar management College students, married couples, rich and poor, deer parkers, five-milers. Some of you love to eat animals after you kill animals. Others of you are vegetarians. We have moms and dads, Republicans and Democrats, Husky fans and Cougar fans, Seahawk fans. 
And yes, 49ers fans, it's true. It's true. Homeschoolers, public schoolers, private schoolers, Ford fans, Chevy fans, people who like country music, and people who like rap music, if rap is music. <laughs> There's no human reason for us to all gather together on the Lord's Day, none whatsoever. We are a very diverse, motley crew. So what unites us? None of those things. What unites us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all know that we are sinners who deserve God's righteous judgment. Yet all of us have cast ourselves on God's mercy, crying out for, to God for grace and forgiveness and reconciliation. We are trusting him alone to save us. And when that happens, again, we're united to Christ by faith, and all those united to Christ by faith experience a glorious gospel unity. How else can the world explain what happens on Sunday morning? In the, in the, the workplace these days, unity, or diversity is foisted upon us, which is why many of you have to go to diversity training in your offices and companies. It's forced upon you because there's nothing there that really unites you besides making money. But in the church of Jesus Christ, what unites us is the gospel. Unity is not forced upon us. It grows out of us naturally because of our love and trust in Jesus Christ our Savior. But why does this unity matter? What is the purpose of this gospel unity? Again, verse 21a, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Then verse 23b, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The love that we have for each other, the unity that we experience can only be explained by the fact that we've all been forgiven by Jesus and he is currently transforming us, sanctifying us, making us more like himself. How else can we explain our love for one another? If it weren't for the gospel, none of us would be here this morning, singing songs together, praying together, listening to sermons together. Our unity proves that God really did send his son to earth to suffer and die for us, and our unity proves that God really is supernaturally involved in our lives, transforming us, changing us, and helping us to love, serve, and forgive one another. Francis Schaeffer famously said that the greatest apologetic is love. And what he meant by that is the love we have for one another. On the flip side, the Puritan Thomas Manton said this, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. Nothing kills your witness faster than your lack of love for your fellow Christian. So how can we pursue this type of unity? And that brings us to the final heading. The plea for unity the pattern for unity, the particulars of unity, the purpose of unity, and fifth and finally is the pursuit of unity. Now Christ prays for this unity, and it will be answered by the Father. At the same time, God is sovereign and we are responsible to work for unity in this local church and in our community. What does it look like to pursue unity in this particular context that God has placed us in? Well, here are several suggestions. Uh, we can pursue unity by keeping the gospel central. That is the most important thing you and I can do 
to maintain unity. When we are focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and notice that it has nothing to do with you. The gospel is objective. Good news is entirely outside of you. All you contribute to that is your sin. The gospel is the good news of Christ, and when we keep that the main thing, unity naturally flows out of that. Now, I just read an excellent book uh, by Gavin Ortland. Um, it's called Finding the Right Hills to Die On, The Case for Theological Triage. And in that book, he makes the point that all doctrine's important, but all, not all doctrine is equally important. So as Christians, we have to triage and figure out which doctrines are worth dying over and which doctrines can we agree to disagree on. And so he tells us to think about concentric circles. And that middle circle are the most important gospel doctrines, things like the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the Trinity, salvation by faith alone. Those crucial doctrines that all Christians are supposed to agree on. And then moving out the next circle, important things, but not as important as the, doc, as the gospel, but these are the, these are the issues that create denominations. So things like one's view of church government, uh, one's view of the sacraments. Uh, those are important issues, uh, and they usually create denominations and churches. Then the third circle would be things uh, that Christians can disagree on in the same church. So things like your view of the millennium, your view of the age of the earth, your view of spiritual gifts, important, but we can ad agree to disagree on those things and be involved in the same church. And the whole point of thinking that through is uh, <laughs> to make the point that we shouldn't argue and debate about everything. We should be most concerned about that center circle, the things that all Christians historically have agreed on. Apostles' creeds type stuff, simple stuff, basic stuff. We can agree on those things, and we shouldn't be fighting about those things. So it's important for us to ask the question, are all doctrines worth fighting for? And the answer is no, they're not. But there, there are some doctrines that are definitely worth fighting for. Furthermore, we can pursue unity by celebrating denominations. Now, this may sound counterintuitive. Don't denominations prove the church is divided? What, what, do I, what do I mean by this? Denominations and detailed statements of faith actually promote local church unity. What do I mean? Consider the different views of church government. There are at least three different schools of thought out there. You have uh, churches that are ruled by elders, churches that are ruled by the congregation, and churches that are ruled by bishops, Episcopalian churches. Now, it's, it would be hard to be in one church where there are three different views of church government. It'd be hard to get anything done. So in denominations, for instance, if you're um, a Presbyterian, you're going to say, you know, we, we have agreed in this denomination that we are going to be governed or ruled by a plurality of male elders. That's, those are our convictions. Now, if you disagree with us, that's okay. You can still be a Christian, but this may not be the best church for you. We have agreed that we're not going to fight about this issue in this church because we agree that we should be governed by a plurality of elders. If you think we should be governed by the congregation or a bishop, there's probably a better church for you. And maybe you should go there instead so that, we, so that we won't fight about this secondary issue. And by the way, uh, GCF right now currently is financially supporting two Presbyterian churches. We're not Presbyterian. We disagree with them on church government and baptism. 
but they're doing really good gospel work. And so we're giving them money financially. And if you have Presbyterian convictions, that may be a better fit for you. And that means that we don't have to fight here at GCF about baptism and church governance. So in a way, denominations, statements of faith, actually encourage and promote local church unity because you're saying we've agreed to not fight about these things. These are our convictions. And if they're not your convictions, you can be here, but you may want to go somewhere else where you can really celebrate your own convictions on these things. Furthermore, we can pursue unity by killing pride. Pride is the greatest source of disunity in every church. And this can be so subtle and deadly. We grow proud about our theological distinctives. We grow proud about our philosophy of ministry. We grow proud about our amazing worship music. And they're pretty good here at GCF North, I'm just saying. We grow proud about the things that make us distinct from other Christians. And before too long, spiritual elitism has set in. And God hates pride. The Bible's clear that God resists pride. We must humble ourselves and put to death our pride, recognizing that we don't have everything figured out at GCF North. And any success we have is not due to us, our wisdom, our intellect, our amazing elder board. Any success we have is surely based on the grace and goodness of God. We can also pursue unity by focusing on the mission. The more we focus on evangelizing the lost and making disciples, the less time we have for infighting. If you and I are desperately trying to reach our lost friends with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we recognize that those friends are going to hell for all eternity apart from our witness, we're not going to have a whole lot of time or energy or effort to argue about the millennium because our friends are going to hell. And together we're trying to reach them and bring them into the kingdom. Now, I have a millennial view, and I think it's the right one. But it's not nearly as important as making disciples and evangelizing the lost. When we focus on the mission, it has a way of really sharpening our unity. We can also pursue unity by praying for the Christians that bug us or annoy us. In a church this size, I'm sure there's someone here, maybe it's me, who annoys you or bugs you or irritates you. But you know what happens when you pray for someone often? God has a way of changing your heart towards that person, and slowly over time, you begin to love that person the more you pray for them. It's funny how that works. We can pursue unity as well by praying for other churches, which we do publicly on a regular basis. And we can pursue unity by choosing our words carefully. In other words, be very, very careful how you talk about other churches in the area and other Christians. Whenever someone leaves GCF, and this just happened, a couple just left, um, to head to a great church in the area. And I said to them, I said, that's a wonderful church. I know the pastor, he's a friend of mine. You're in really good hands at Northview Bible with Norm Schwab. He's a great brother. Go there with our blessing. How you talk about other churches indicates what you think about the gospel and the unity of the church. 
When I was in seminary, at a Presbyterian seminary, and my professors modeled this so well, whenever they would disagree with the theologian, they would always find ways to talk about the good aspects of this particular theologian, whether it was Wesley or or Jacob Arminius or someone else, they would, they, would find, they would look for things to say, look for positive things to say about this theologian before providing some helpful critique of the theologian. So we need to choose our words very carefully. <laughs> I often say to people jokingly, I hope they know it's a joke, that GCF North is the only true church in Spokane that's just north of Whitworth Water and south of Colbert Press in a really small area. Of course, there are many, many wonderful churches in the Spokane area uh, that we partner with, which brings me to the last suggestion, and that is we can pursue unity by celebrating local church partnership. Uh, Over the years, GCF has developed great partnerships through a ministry called the Spurgeon Fellowship. Uh, Myself and Kyle Schwann from Indian Trail Church and a few other brothers lead that ministry, and three times a year, we gather anywhere from two to 300 pastors for Bible teaching, and they come from all different denominations and walks of life. And furthermore, GCF helped found an organization called the INC, the Inland Northwest Cooperative, and that's currently 15 to 20 churches that have come together, and we've agreed to share our resources to plant churches in the area, and we're planting our first church through Fourth Memorial Church uh, uh, in the Moran Prairie area uh, south of Spokane in, in roughly six to eight months. And GCF uh, gave, I think, $25,000 to that cause. Because we believe in local church planning, and those are good churches for us to partner with. So it's good for us to encourage and facilitate local church partnership because we're not the only church in town that's doing good gospel work. There are many others. And if you don't like this church, I hope you do. But if you don't, I can recommend several wonderful churches I'm all over Spokane that you can go to and hear great preaching and receive wonderful pastoral care. Well, let me conclude with this story. Harry Ironside relates an experience on a train ride he took in the early 20th century. The first morning, he began his day, as always, by reading from his Bible. A German woman came by and asked him what he was doing. When he told her, she said, wait, I go get my Bible and we have it together. Sometime later, a Scandinavian man saw them reading the Bible, and he asked, can I join you? Soon, a great number of people in the train car were taking part in the Bible study, which gathered every day during the long traverse across our continent. Before long, the conductor was advertising the Bible meetings to all the cars. Hymns and prayers were added, and a service was started at which Ironside would preach. When they finally arrived at their destination and the passengers disembarked, the German woman who had started it all came to Ironside and asked, what denomination are you? And he answered, I belong to the same denomination that David did. What was that, she asked? I didn't know that David belonged to any denomination. Ironside replied, I'm a companion of all of them that fear God and keep his commandments. The lady replied, yes, yes, that is a good church to belong to. Let's pray together.